Well, good morning. Shh. My name is Matthew again. I mean, still, that is. Uh, again, one of the pastors here. Excited to see you this morning. If you're joining us for the first time or 50th time, we're, we're glad you're here. I, uh, I, was, I was raised um, functionally in a single mom household. Uh, my dad was gone by the time I was six, and my stepfather was gone working around the country for several months at a time by the time I was about nine. And we lived a pretty nominal version of Christianity. We didn't go to church much except about once a year on Easter, for which my siblings and I meant we got a new pair of white shoes and some pastel polos. And that's about it. Um, When I was 18 years old, I was living in total rebellion to God. I was a liar, a cheat, a manipulator. I hurt people, used people, hurt my mom, hurt my friends, hurt my brother and my sister, hurt the woman that would one day be my wife. But more than all that, I hated God. I didn't want his reign and authority in my life. I didn't want to see his glory. I didn't want to revel in his goodness, cherish his all-satisfying presence. I didn't want to dance around in the joy of his grace. I just hated him. And that, my friends, is what our rebellion and your rebellion to God is ultimately about. It is your hatred toward God. So when I was 18 years old, I broke the law by stealing from the place where I worked. And I ended up going to jail for about six months. And in my first night in jail, the very, very first night, I was all alone. It was quiet, and I was laying on this metal bunk bed. And I looked up, and someone had scratched into the metal above the bunk above me with this short message. This short message that I read that I will never forget. And it said this. It said, you are here because you did not yield to God. Now that statement isn't necessarily any gospel truth. That statement isn't even necessarily an exclusively Christian statement. A Muslim could say it, a Jewish man can say it, you did not yield to God. Nevertheless, when I read it, I wept. And I wept long and I wept hard. But it wasn't until a few months later, while still in jail, that two men came from a local church and these guys came in on a Saturday morning and they were just two normal guys. And they came loaded though with a message on their hearts that had gripped them to their very core. And they were eager to tell it to the 10 or 15 guys that showed up to listen to them. And they preached the gospel to me. I don't remember exactly what they said, but in some way they communicated to me that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world as a man, that he lived a perfect life of obedience to God, he fully and perfectly fulfilled all the precepts of the law, and at the end of his life, he was crucified on a Roman cross. And on that cross, he suffered under the righteous wrath of God against sin. 
that he was dead and buried, and yet on the third day he rose again, proving and showing his vindication over sin, death, and the devil. And that message gripped me, and it changed me. As an aside, do jail ministry. Our brother John has been going into the jail for 10, 15 years, and and there was a season I went with him for about five years but it's on Saturday nights, and, and, the, and the weight of preaching here on Sunday mornings was just a little much. But if you're a young man and you aspire to the ministry, you aspire to preach God's word, talk to John, and he'll give you an opportunity to preach the gospel once a month to men who are eager to hear God's word. The gospel, my friends, is what brings new birth. That's the term that Jesus uses in the gospel of John. He says, you must be born Again, the new birth is the work of God to open our eyes to behold his glory. It's what Charles Wesley's hymn means when he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's the new birth. That's being regenerated. That's your eyes being opened to behold the beauty and the glory of God. Okay, so why all this for an introduction? Because for the next three weeks, we're going to be doing a three-part series on the vision statement of this local church. Celebrate and display the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to talk about what that means to celebrate and display. And then next week, we're going to talk about the beauty and the glory. And then the following week, we're going to talk about Jesus Christ exclusively. Okay. Our text this morning, 2 Corinthians three twelve through 4, 6. Our text for Easter will be Revelation 5, verse 5. And our text for the following week, the 23rd or whatever it is, is Luke 24. So let's read 2 Corinthians together. And then I'll expound it to us. And hopefully show the relevance for why I opened the sermon the way that I did. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through chapter 4, verse 6. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Though we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. 
but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for your word to us this morning. Lord, we long to know what it is to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, we all come this morning with varying degrees of weariness, angst, anxiety, depression, worry, and we all need to desperately behold the face of Jesus Christ. We pray and I pray and I confess that I am so desperate for your grace. I am so desperate to even see you and behold you as I preach your word. Help us, Lord, as a people to be built up, to be built up by your spirit, that we might even see your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I must say something by way of introduction. And really, it's, it's, it's helpful, I think, and crucial in understanding sort of the formation of this phrase that during the time this statement was written, there, were th- there was a massive influence from three different spiritual fathers in the faith. The brothers and sisters that wrote this statement and, and, and helped start this church were deeply influenced by men like Timothy Keller, John Piper, and Jonathan Edwards. And really, a lot of I'm going to say is really just formed from Jonathan Edwards' ideas, particularly the end for which God created the world, a divine and supernatural light, and the excellency of Christ. Edwards was an American theologian and pastor. He was the president of Princeton Seminary. But probably most profound about him was his family life. His biographer, George Marsden, notes that the Edwards family produced scores of clergymen 13 university presidents, 65 professors, and many other persons of notable achievements. His legacy was longstanding. So this sermon has three building blocks made in three points. We're going to climb, we're going to climb a ladder here. Point one will be the glory of God. Point two will be conversion. And point three will be sanctification. And sanctification just means becoming holy. Becoming like God. Point one, the glory of God. What is the glory of God? We talk about it all the time. And it seems to me that it can be a catchphrase that can get easily tossed around all the time, and we really don't always know what we mean by it. Sort of like the phrase gospel or gospel centered. I'll save that one for another sermon. So what is the glory of God? The glory of God is the infinite beauty, power, and worth of God on display. The infinite beauty, 
power and worth of God on display. See, we don't, we don't add to God's glory. God is infinitely beautiful, powerful, and worthy apart from anything we do. So for us to glorify God is not to add to his glory, rather it is simply for us to embrace and to deeply enjoy and to proclaim his glory. Matthew 5, 16 says, in the same way, let your good works shine before men so that when they see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. So the ultimate aim of our lives is to live in such a way that reveals God's glory. That is, our lives are to be lived so passionately for his worth, for his beauty, and for his power to be known. I take that to be what Isaiah means when he says in Isaiah 6.3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Has it ever struck you that it doesn't say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, and the whole world earth is full of his holiness? It doesn't say that. It says the whole earth is full of his glory. Glory is the worth of God on display. That's what it is. The glory of God is the worth of God. Everything that God is in himself, his power, his beauty, his holiness, on display. And the entire purpose of the universe is to display God's glory. That's the entire purpose of everything that has been made. God made the world so that his glory might be shown forth and so that creatures could enjoy his glory. Edwards put it like this. There's going to be parts of this sermon, I must warn you, that's going to be like you're in, in the deep end of a pool and you're just kind of like right here. But I'll try to make sure that we can go right here. But you're going to have to track with me. Edwards put it like this. All that is ever spoken of in the scriptures as an ultimate end of God's work is included in just this one phrase, the glory of God. The beams of glory come from God and are something of God and are refunded back again to the original so that the whole is of God and in God and to God. And God is the beginning, the middle, and the end of this affair. Amen. Everything is of God and in God and to God and all is for his glory. And God's glory is on display in a multitude of ways, okay? So if, if, if God's glory, his infinite worth, power, beauty, is it being known, there's a lot of ways in which it could be known. One of the primary ways that can be known is creation, right? The things that we can see. His glory is on display in the mountains and the valleys, His glory is on display when we look at our own bodies and we see the intricate way that we've been made. His glory is on display when we look at the depth and the breadth of the universe. Galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies that we don't know anything about. And not only does God know about these galaxies, he upholds these galaxies by the word of his power. He upholds every atomic particle of a star that you and I will never even know of. That speaks to his glory. His infinite power. That means his power has no end. His infinite worth. But, the glory of God 
is most clearly seen in one place. There is an ultimate place where you can see the infinite beauty, value, and worth of God. The glory of God is most clearly seen and revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. One scholar, Tom Schreiner, put it like this in his book, Magnifying Christ. He says, God's purpose in all that he does is to bring honor to himself and to Jesus Christ. The New Testament is radically God-centered. We could say that the New Testament is about God magnifying himself in Christ through the Spirit. Redemptive history is fundamentally grasping the message of the New Testament. Still, God's ultimate purpose is not the fulfillment of his plan. Track here. God's ultimate purpose is not the fulfillment of his plan. He must have a purpose, an aim, and a goal in that plan. And here, the whole purpose of salvation history emerges. God works out his saving plan so that he would be magnified in Christ and so that his name would be honored. The ultimate purpose for mission is the glory of God so that his name will be magnified among all peoples. The glory of God is most clearly seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The purpose of redemptive history, the purpose of the gospel, is so that God himself might be glorified. That there is an aspect of who God is that can only ultimately be seen in the gospel. That there's, that there's an aspect in which his infinite power and worth might be able to be seen in, 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 in pondering the creation as we know it, or the galaxies as we know it. But the infiniteness of his beauty and his power and his worth can only come together in one place, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll explain that. So now put your finger in our text. Look at verse 4-4. And I'm going to prove to you that the glory of God is most clearly seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says this. In their case, this is 4-4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, we'll look at the first part of that verse in a moment, but let's look at the second half. It says, light of the gospel, glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now look down two verses to verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Again, first half of that verse is, my, is the next point. But for now, the second half. Light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Both of those verses, verses 4 and verse 6, they both have light. One says light of knowledge, other says light of the gospel. I take that to simply be a parallel statement. Okay? In fact, what I'm suggesting is that the second half of both of these verses are parallel. In other words, they're saying the same thing. So what Paul is trying to tell us is that the glory of God is the glory of Christ. And that the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's what we've been saying all along. That the glory of God is most clearly seen in the face of Jesus Christ and in his great gospel. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance, Jesus, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
John says in his prologue, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God shines forth like a bright light for all the world to see, not most clearly from the vista place overlooking the Columbia. And the glory of God shines forth most clearly not in seeing a baby develop in the womb. The glory of God is most clearly seen on a bloody cross at Calvary where Jesus Christ bled and died for you and me. The infinite worth, the infinite beauty, and the infinite majesty of God is on the cross. On the cross of Christ, and in the person of Jesus Christ, there is the fullness of glory. We will look more at that next week when we look at beauty and glory. But for now, I must just give you a taste of why that is. And I alluded to it a moment ago. I alluded to it a moment ago that I think we can fathom that God's infinite power can be seen in the things that he's made. But how, does, how do we see his infinite beauty? That's what I think Revelation 5.5, 5, where it says that he is a lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is a lamb as one who's been slain. This is what Edwards calls in his sermon, The Excellency of Christ. He says, there is in Christ a diversity of attributes. A diversity of attributes. We see the qualities of a lion. Strong, mighty, conquering, vanquishing all his enemies. No man can stand before him. And we see the qualities of a lamb. Meek, mild, humble. Suffering at the hands of his human persecutors and crucifiers. Dining and dwelling with sinners like you and me. Allowing a woman to wash his feet. Talking to the woman at the well which would have been anathema. Dying in my place and your place. He is the most mighty and the most humble. Listen to Edwards. Infinite highness and infinite condescension. Infinite and perfect justice. And infinite and lavish grace. Infinite glory. Lowest humility. Infinite majesty. Transcendent meekness. Deepest reverence towards God and equality with God. Infinite worthiness of good and greatest patience under evil sufferings. An exceeding spirit of obedience while at the same time having supreme dominion over all heaven and earth. Absolute sovereignty and yet perfect resignation. Complete self-sufficiency and yet an entire trust, dependence, and reliance on God. There is no place under the sun in all of creation that God has made where his glory can be more clearly seen than in the man and in the work and in the person of Jesus Christ. More than the cosmos, more than the Columbia, more than our own bodies, more than anything else, 
the glory of God is on display for all to see in the Son of God. That's point one. If that is the glory of God, then, my friends, how then do we approach it? In our scripture reading today, we read that any, that God said to Moses, anyone that approaches his glory will, will, will die. Well, first, we must be converted. We must be converted. Look at verses, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 again. It says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The essence of what it means to not be converted means to not behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the essence of what it means to not be a Christian. Look, every soul must behold some kind of glory. The soul must have some kind of way in which it seeks its worth and its value. You know, even Bob Dylan said, you're going to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. The option to not find a way for the soul to find its delight, to find something it seeks its glory in, is not an option. And this really, I don't think this is really that hard for us to get our minds around and to get into. Let me give us a few examples to hopefully illustrate this. Do you find your worth and do you find your value in how you look? In your beauty, in your appearance, the way that others look at you? Do you? How long, this is a very practical question to ask yourself, don't answer me. How long do you spend getting ready in the morning? <laughs> How many of your Instagrams are selfies? I know it may sound a little silly, but really, do you find your worth in how you look? Do you find your worth or your glory in being successful? Does the kind of accolade or praise or satisfaction that comes from money drive you? Does it drive you to the point that you actually find your worth in it? Do you find your worth in your kids? Whether they are successful or not. Whether they are thriving or not. Is that where your value comes from? Because the soul is going to constantly be finding an object wherein it can find its value and worth. The option to not find a place to find the soul's value and worth is not an option. To just be robotic and mechanical is not the way that the human heart functions. We know this. I don't think this is, I don't think I'm saying anything that anyone wouldn't agree with. But here's a simple litmus test. As I was asking those questions, and there's, 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 there's tons of things that it could be, Correct? Ways that you find your functional worth and value. And someone thinking that you're smart, that you offer good advice, that you offer good counsel, that you're seen as someone who can be a trusted advisor. Here's the litmus test. What happens when those things are gone? What happens when the thought of those things or the danger of one of those things or the opportunity for one of those things to be gone or taken from you, what does that make your soul do? 
obviously, there is a reasonable amount of desire to have financial security, to look presentable, to have good kids. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, does the thought of it truly shake you to the core? To the point where you say, maybe I do find my worth and my value in this object. Christianity, my friends, takes us off the spectrum. It says that the glory that you're looking for is found in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. Your soul was not made to be a glory-seeking soul that find its value in money or looks. That is so trivial for what your soul was actually created to do. Your soul was given the capacity to enjoy the glory of God. (laughs) That's amazing. But this text also says something that's very hard-hitting and very in your face. It says this. It says, if you do not cherish the glory of Christ, then you are not converted and that you are being blinded by the God of this world. That's what verse 4 says. Verse 4, and the God of this world is Satan. The evil one. This text is saying that if right now, as I'm talking to you and preaching to you, if you do not behold and cherish the glory of God, then Satan is actively blinding you. If you do not behold the glory of God, verse 3 says, it's because you're perishing. Not beholding the glory of God is a cosmic sin. It is cosmic rebellion against God. That's the state that I was in when I was laying in that jail cell. I hated God. I hated his glory. I wanted nothing to do with it. My eyes were blinded and I was perishing. They were being blinded by the God of this world. My friends, that's what the enemy does. The enemy blinds, the enemy deceives, the enemy lies. Whispering in your ear, getting you to doubt, getting you to think that you're not worthy to behold his glory, getting you to focus on your sin. You're a lousy father, you're a lousy employee, you're a lousy wife. Why should God let you? You don't deserve it. That's what the enemy constantly is doing. He's a liar, he's a deceiver, he hates you, and he hates God, and he hates God's glory. The essence of becoming a Christian is to cherish the glory of God, and that can only happen by the work of God. Look at verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? Wait, let light shine out of darkness? That's Genesis 1-3. God spoke to the cosmos, the cosmos into being. There wasn't light. God says light, and then there was. There is another kind of light that this text is telling us that every single human being needs. Paul's using the analogy from Genesis 1-3, and he's talking about a different kind of illumination that we need. He calls it the light of the gospel, or the light of the knowledge of Christ in verses 4 and 6. And that act 
of light shining into your heart, Paul is saying, is no less of a miracle than when God made the sun. Your natural mind hates God. My natural mind hated God laying in that jail cell. If you were raised in a Christian home, and you never knew a time of rebellion, the miracle that has happened in your hearts is the same miracle that put the stars in the sky. Belief and regeneration are a miracle from God. The only thing and the only way that can happen is if God in his perfect and sovereign will chooses to take a human heart and make it alive. And that is what happens when God speaks. God speaks and things become alive. God stood in front of the tomb of Lazarus. There was a dead man in there. And God said, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man got up and walked out. And God says to you through the preaching of his word right now, believe. And if your heart begins to believe and cherish his glory, it's because God is performing a miracle through his word. The same miracle that he performed when he created the cosmos as we know it. If your heart is engendered to believe... Through the preaching of his word, God is speaking a new existence into your heart and into your life. Praise God. My friends, if God is speaking that to you now, repent of your glory-seeking ways and turn in faith and trust to him. Every single Christian in this room is a flat-out miracle. So, The glory of God, the need for conversion, and now sanctification. Growth in Christ. How we grow into Christ-likeness. I've kind of been walking through this text backwards a bit, and we're going to keep doing that. Look at chapter 3 now. Starting at verse 12. There's There's a contrast... And there's a parallel in this text. As we read earlier, the Israelites, they would not look at God's glory and um, as Moses' face reflected it. They chose, verse 14 tells us, to live in a spiritual blindness. But the contrast of the new covenant... The contrast of Christians is that they do live in the presence of the Lord. Moses was in God's presence for a limited time, but the promise to the Christian is that the presence of Jesus, the presence of the Lord always with him, that's Jesus' final words in the Gospel of Matthew. And look, verse 18 says, and we all with unveiled face. I take that to mean every Christian Not some super class of Christians, not Christians that are super devoted, not Christians that are kind of like really into it and highly spiritual people, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Just as Moses reflected God's glory and was changed, he was transfigured, so also are we transformed into the image of God, into the Lord's image from glory to glory. As Moses turned to God, so we turn to the Lord and we derive our glory 
from him through the working of the Spirit. Verse 18, again, says that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. Our transformation comes as we behold him. What's striking is this word for behold. Now, if you have a, because it it has this twofold meaning. It, It means to behold and to radiate. It brings to mind the image of a mirror. It's the same phrase that's used in 1 Corinthians when it says, uh, now we see through a mirror dimly. And this word here, it means to, to, to gaze at something, but then for that thing to be reflected back to you. Okay? So ESV says, beholding the glory of the Lord. That's pretty wooden. NAS, and there's one person in here that reads that. His name's Chris Taylor. It says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, right? Maybe nodded. NIV says, and we with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory. So NIV sort of went the reflection route. I think NAS is probably best. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. It's this idea of meditating, being transfixed with, gazing upon the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. And the act of doing that, reflecting actually back on yourself. At the act of gazing at something that's totally wonderful and beautiful and glorious, actually reflects back on you, and it's a sanctifying process. You're changing in the moment. Here's a small analogy. It's going to sound almost blasphemous, but not blasphemous, because if it was, I wouldn't say it. Um, I love my wife very dearly. She is a very godly, lovely woman. And one of the things that God uses at times to sanctify me, to change me, is to think about her. That would this act disappoint her? Would me acting a certain way or saying a certain thing be disappointing to her? And God uses that in my life. There's an act of looking upon her, thinking of her, and it reflecting back to me. Now, she's a total sinner, okay? (laughs) Now, think of the Lord Jesus Christ, the lion and the lamb, the one where infinite beauty and infinite holiness, where transcendent sovereignty and infinite meekness come together and behold him. Behold him my friends. And the text says that as we do that, we are transformed, which that word only occurs a couple times in the whole New Testament. And guess where it appears? At the transfiguration. Mark 9, 2. That he was transformed. There was a radiance about him. So what does this mean? Let me let me drive this, let me get practical, let me summarize how then do we get to celebrate in display? What does this mean for TGC? Celebrate, okay. <clears throat> celebrate and display is what is meant by 2 Corinthians 3.18. That we behold the face of Jesus Christ like a mirror. That we gaze upon it and begin to actually radiate it. 
To celebrate could also mean that we have affections for Jesus. That our hearts are enamored with who he is. That as we think on the gospel, we think about his infinite worth, we think about his infinite beauty, we celebrate it. And as we actually celebrate it, as we actually meditate upon it, we begin to actually radiate it. We celebrate him and we will begin to display him. Celebrate and display. So let me just give us some practical things. What does that mean? Well, one of the number one things it means, if this is our vision statement as a local church, it means that we as pastors and elders and preachers must labor every week to uphold and present the gospel before you. We absolutely must do that. Our preaching must not primarily be about moral instruction. Our preaching must primarily be about upholding the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Because as we behold that, the text tells us, then that radiates back unto us. We must labor to constantly present the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ as we preach. Second, it means that we must emphasize the spirit. Come on, amen, Donna. We must emphasize the spirit. You know, seven times in verse, in chapter three, rather, it talks about the spirit. It's the spirit's work. Jesus even tells us that when he leaves, he'll send to us a helper and the helper will lead us and guide us into all, into all remembrance. It's the Spirit's job to apply the work of the gospel, the truth of the gospel to our hearts. Even verse 18 says it, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. An emphasis and a longing for God's Spirit to move among us as a local church. That's why we don't want to be the frozen chosen. We want to long for God's presence and Spirit to come upon us. We want His Spirit to freshly fall on us to lead us into the truth of the gospel. A spirit-driven local church. Third thing. It means that we must first emphasize being overdoing. We must first emphasize being overdoing. It means that as a local church, we must first realize our identity in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And this is massively important for us as we consider a potential uh, enfolding with Lentz Baptist Church. Because we can't first and foremost focus on what we're going to do. We must first and foremost focus on who we are. Who God is making us through the spirit, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This came home to me because someone asked Severn a couple weeks ago, what drew him to the church initially? And he said this. He said, because when we first got to the gathering, we realized that we were among a group of people that longed to sit in God's presence, to simply bask in who he was, his beauty, his glory, his presence. And that waiting there and lingering there and beholding there is what begins to change us, is what makes us and forms us to be a people, which allows us to actually then have something to go show and distribute and give to the world. A community of people that are longing to see the glory of God. A community of people that are gazing upon the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. This is freshly always important for us, but specifically as we consider this merger with Lent. Because the temptation will be for us to start putting on, what are we going to do? What are going to be the ministries? And we must first focus on, are we a people who are enamored with the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ? And finally... 
It means, my friends, that you must preach the gospel to yourself every single day. You must labor. We're going to have a hard members meeting here in a moment where we're going to talk about our brother. Our former brother. And we must remember that the fight of faith is the ultimate aim of the Christian. It is a fight to believe every single day. And it is this constant dual working purpose. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do. My friends, in the new covenant, we can gaze upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And how much time do we waste looking at Netflix and Facebook when we can behold and actually think on God? How many of you wake up in the morning and just open the scriptures and long to look at Jesus? Why do you expect to ever change if you don't do that? Why do you expect your life to ever be conformed into his image if you don't use the things that he's put right in front of you? He's given us his word. This is a strong word to you, my friends. As one of your pastors, I want you to hear it. We ought not be surprised. We ought not be shocked when people drift away from God if their lives aren't consumed and passionately sold out for his glory, cherishing it, longing for it, seeing it above all else. So now that's what I'm going to let you do as we come to the table and as we come to sing two more songs to God. We come to the table and we will celebrate what Jesus Christ has done for us. We will hold in our hands a picture of his transcendence and a picture of his meekness because he's the one who can forgive sins and he's the one who does. And then, my friends, we will sing, come behold the wondrous mystery, the great mystery of the universe, that God became a man. And then we will close as we wave our palm branches and we will sing Hosanna, which means God save us. Let us pray. Father, help us now as we come to the next moments of our service. We pray, God, that our hearts would be freshly enamored with your beauty and glory. That we would behold you at the supper and we would behold you as we sing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're welcome to come up row by row for uh, the tables open to all who have been baptized and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. If that's not you, then I encourage you to consider the words that were spoken today and and if God is speaking, if he spoke a word of life to you, then respond to him in faith and trust. Respond to him and trust him. You can come up row by row, take the elements back to your seat, and one of the elders will lead us in communion together.